take a break. But EverQuest is pretty great. Run away with us for the summer. It's pretty great. Oh my goodness, Sean. We're not playing EverQuest right now. We're doing other things. How do you feel? Mm, I think that everybody takes a break. We, we took we took we played for a couple few years without taking one really um i mean i think i saw it coming uh, and i'm i'm starting to look forward to get back to it like i looked last night i was gonna potentially go on the raid last or thursday that's not last night but two nights ago and i looked in i was like oh they're doing they're doing launch stuff Launch stuff, seeds of Fedware. And I was like, ooh, I can't do that. I, oh, I just I can't dive in that deep right now. Not going to happen. I wanted like an hour to an hour and a half of, of tasting, and it was going to be a lot longer, I thought, than that. So I decided I'm going to wait one more week. But I think next week, I think next week I'll probably start to ooh. dial in. Ooh. SOF? Um... Not sure. <laughs> well, you know what I'm sure of? This week we are reviewing The Princess Bride, 1987 film directed by Carl Reiner, Sean. We picked this film to review because why not? Why not put a movie review in a show all about the video game EverQuest? Hi, I'm Jeff. This is Sean. This is for EverQuest. Hello, everybody. This is a show about EverQuest where all we do is not talk about EverQuest. We're currently taking a break and talking about other things. And... um the Princess Bride is the, our second movie, movie review after Germo, also known as Gummo. And uh, this one, Sean, uh, I, I would say I picked it, but you picked it. You mentioned this was your favorite movie, and I'm like, well, guess what movie we're doing next? Yeah, it's hard for me to say favorites. I'm one of those people that's like, oh, uh, I don't, you know, favorite is like, you know, so limiting. So, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's up there and it's in the top five or ten, whatever you want to think about, and it's definitely affected me. Um, I've watched it multiple times with multiple different groups of people. It's you know, it's one of those um movies you can see and see and see and never really gets old. You didn't watch it with Willie Nelson and a bunch of people, did you? Oh yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Okay. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. This yeah. is this is gonna be weird. That's fine, though, I guess. You know, I like the movie a lot, too. I think it's, um, you know, one of the best movies of our generation. I think uh, I heard somebody say it's kind of like the new um, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life was a movie that was, you know, mildly successful when it came out. But as time went on, it became more and more beloved. And um, I think Princess Bride has fallen into that category. It was It was more successful than... A Wonderful Life when that came out, but it is also aging really well, I think. And it's just kind of a perfect little movie. So why don't we get into it, Sean? Okay. I mean, uh, we just lost half our listeners. That's okay. Bye-bye. Uh, you, you might be able to actually have your kids listen to this episode. Well, maybe. We'll see how deep it gets. But I would not recommend any kids listen to this episode. None of my notes have any filth in them, but... Um, there's going to be an E on this episode. You never know with Sean. That's the thing. With Sean, you never know what's going to come out of him. Get your kids out of the room. <laughs> All right, Sean. We're going to break it down scene by scene. Here we go. Scene one, Sean. Fred and Gramps. We're introduced to a sick boy, played by Fred Savage, who is visited uh, by his grandfather, pay, played by Peter Falk, who wants to read him a book called The Princess Bride. Ah, the boy, my eye's not really working today on the right side, but uh, I see that you're feeling a little funny, so let's talk. What? <laughs> Excuse keep me? Going. Just keep going. Okay. Just keep going. Okay, so the boy the is... The guy that um, plays the dad. The guy that plays the dad. Come on. Peter, he... I, he okay. <laughs> so the boy is skeptical that it might be a kissing book, um, so he's not too sure about it. There's not a lot of kissing. There is, however, in the room, uh, a poster of the fridge, which I was happy to see. Now, I, I, I got to ask you, Sean, we got to let everybody know, when's the last time you've seen this? I would say 
maybe a year to a year and a half. Okay, we're gonna see how good your memory is here. This is gonna be okay. fun because you're All gonna right. get to you're gonna get to kind All of break down each scene with me. But you have a year and a half memory to work with. I took detailed notes yesterday, so I'll kind of create the frame and then you jump in there and pepper it with some with a little mm-hmm. color. Okay, it might be longer than a year and a half too. But yeah, okay, maybe two, three years. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> maybe four or five. So yeah, um, on the wall, there's a poster of the fridge, which I was happy to see, uh, Chicago Burrs. Mm-hmm. There were some Cheetos, which are always in Carl Reiner movies. Mm-hmm. Grandpa is wearing a suit because that's what people from the greatest generation did. I'm not talking about the baby boomers, everybody. I'm talking about the people in front and where I'm wearing, you know. And uh, finally, Freddie Savage uh, is playing a pretty neat little video baseball game in this scene, one that I, I remember playing. Very old school analog. Yeah, it was called, uh, what was the name of that company that made that? Tecmo or something? Tecmo? I don't know. Yeah, it's Tecmo. Tecmo Ball, maybe? Can't remember. Anyway, what was the question? You you said there was something. I don't have questions. You're supposed to comment on the scene. Oh. I don't have questions for you, Sean. Well, I remember the scene really vividly because, again, you know, that guy, isn't that actor the same actor that played... Um, uh, the inspector or like the the oh god what was his name you think that that's um <laughs> i don't i don't know if that's peter falk i'll look it up while you're talking no not peter falk it doesn't matter this not guy's a, name is peter falk the actor's name is peter falk no i know but i'm, I'm yes he did I'm, play colombo yes colombo thank you so he's got the eye thing going for him see that's what i'm going for he's got this very special eye that he likes to raise up and down and he uses his eyebrows very well right yeah and so he's talking to he's talking to freddie and freddie is really not feeling this book it's what this is what i remember and and he's you can tell he's sick but he's not like he's not really that sick that's like bacon oh fucker i said get your kids out of the room god get them out get them out now and so yeah, he comes in and he's he convinces him that since he's stuck there anyway, he's just might as well listen to this story. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. have much of a choice. I guess he doesn't get to play his baseball game. Right. So you realize, you know, that this story is going to kind of be potentially moving between this real world scenario, uh, where this man is reading his grandson a book and this fantasy world in which the book is taking place right so that starts to happen in scene two here buttercup and wesley the story begins with a young maiden played by robin wright and her farm boy wesley played by carrie elwes who she enjoys bossing around they fall in love and kiss and then he leaves to make money but unfortunately uh, disappears right off the bat there's kissing yeah and that's and where I, Fred Savage is not having it. No, he kind of cuts in and the, and the story jerks out from fantasy back to reality. Yeah, he jerked out so fast, everybody. And then he's like, oh, grandpa, but I thought, hey, this is just disgusting. And, okay, okay. Well, we could move past this part here and continue going. Now, I took, I wrote down a couple of lines from this movie that I just, you know, once you hear them again and really break them down, it's like, did I hear that right? My favorite line from this scene, um, nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. (laughs) The original FLR, everybody. Moving on to scene three, the engagement. It's uh, now five years later. Prince Humperdinck played by Chris Sarandon, announces that he is marrying Buttercup in one month on the 500th anniversary of the kingdom, which I believe is uh, Florin. It's not Humperdick, it's Humperdink. But go ahead. (laughs) That's what happened. That's the scene. That's scene three, the engagement scene. He announces it to the kingdom. I marry her. And you can see that he's, you know, pretty ecstatic about it. And then she's not looking super happy about it. She's just like, oh, this is not happy days for me. Yeah, I believe she even says it to like uh, the father, the like the king. And he's like, that's nice, dear. Because mm-hmm. the king and the queen are still alive at this point. So it's not King Humperdinck yet. It's Prince Humperdinck. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. That's it. That's it. Uh-huh. 
Scene four, the kidnapping. Um, Buttercup takes her daily horse ride and is kidnapped by three bandits played by, uh, Vicini is played by Wallace Shaw. Inigo is played by Mandy Patinkin and Fezzik is played by Andre Rene Rusimov, also known as Andre the Giant, who were hired to start a war between Florin and Gildan. Yeah, they steal the princess, who also happened to be the bride. Now, Sean, what would you call these in terms of like uh, D&D classes? Hmm. Hmm, that's hard. Well, I mean, <clears throat> one is just a fighter, probably. Andre the Giant's just a straight brawler. Well, wouldn't it be brawler slash bard? Because of his rhyming skills? Mm-mm. Nah, because no. he's not he's not influencing people when he's doing that. Okay. He's just is he like kind of playing around with the idea of becoming a first level bard? That's more one of his trait personality traits there, Jeff. <laughs> that is not one of his skills or abilities. Okay. And that's fine if you want to work on that in your own time. You can go ahead and do that. But then when you come to the table, you need to be paired, prepared to describe yourself with personality traits and then adhere to them. Okay, all right. How about uh, Mandy Patinkin playing Inigo? Uh, I think this is the hardest one for me because, you know, you want to say rogue, but he's not a rogue. Um, I put down Swashbuckler, but I don't think that's a D&D class. It is, actually. And that's pretty good because they are the rogue archetype. Um, they can uh, defense. They use light weapons. They, they like to two-hand weapon fight. Um, they, so that does make some, some sense to me. Uh, Ranger also makes a little bit of sense, uh, because they are, he's seemingly more of a fighter than uh, a thief to me. I'm almost wondering now if, um, Humperdinck is a tracker or a Ranger because he's really good at tracking them later on in the story, but that's a whole different thing. He is. He's very, very good tracker. He's more maybe a Druid though as well, or, or the shit. Uh, then you have, uh, yeah, Vassini played by Wallace Vassini. Shaw. Yeah. And so Vassini is more of like the, he's the thinker. So right. what is that me, though? Well, it's like the tinkerer or the, yeah. it's, it's, you know, he would be casting spells and most. Yeah. I want to give him spell casting, even though he doesn't actually do that, but maybe he does like, uh, maybe we just didn't see it, but alchemy. he like charmed Vassini, you know, to well, join he's, him. He, he's into alchemy. So. Mm, I like it. Okay. So she's kidnapped by the three bandits. Uh, scene five is the boat ride. The bandits are taking Buttercup on a boat ride through eel-infested waters at night when they discovered they are being followed by another boat. Buttercup jumps in the water and is almost eaten by the eels before Fezzik pulls her back into the boat. I, one of the greater scenes, I think, just one of one of the best scenes in the movie uh, I don't, I think it's funny and it also like sets up a lot of, of, of the rest of, of the film. I think there's two things that happen in this scene that have gone down, uh, to just be the way that people talk now and like Canon and just two things that people know what you mean when you say it. And one is, this is the first time we hear Vassini say the word inconceivable, which I've heard people do that, right? Just out of nowhere, inconceivable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And this is the scene where uh, stop rhyming. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? And I've definitely heard people do that too. Yep, that's a oldie but goodie. And um, I think this scene—it's just a good scene all the way through. It's a good scene. I really liked it. Uh, I can pretty much see it—the whole scene in my head, thinking back on it. Even when he pulls, and when Andre the Giant pulls her out of the water, just like one-handed, yeah. holds her up in the air, and like nothing, like nothing. Yeah, I love the way that they portray his strength in the film. It's pretty awesome. Well, they also portray her like she weighs as much as a feather. Um, there's several scenes in the movie where she is feather light. It's kind of strange. There's a scene where she's picked up and put on a horse uh, outside the fire swamp, and it's really weird. Um. But uh, this is also the scene where we see Fred Savage is getting into the book because Grandpa has to stop reading because Fred's looking kind of worried and clutching his blanket as the eels are about to eat the princess. 
Yeah. So this time the grandfather stops and pulls us back to reality and says, Hey, do, do you need me to stop? Should we take a break? Do you need to get a glass of milk? It's like, no, nah, grandpa. And then everything's fine. And they go back to the book. Uh, scene six, the cliffs of insanity, the bandits and buttercup arrive at the cliffs and are carried up by Fezzik while the man in black is fast on their tail. The bandits, once at the top of the cliffs, cut the rope, uh, and the man in black begins to free climb. Vicini and Fezzik keep going with Buttercup as Indigo stays behind to fight the man in black, who he eventually gives the rope to. Another fantastic scene. This whole, like from here, like the next, you know, from the ship scene all the way through this part of the movie, it's definitely my some of my favorite scenes this being probably one of them as well you know the whole time that they're in the boat the ship is gaining on them and that's why it's inconceivable the whole time that the giant is pulling all three of the other humans up the mountain on by this rope which is also just hilarious and funny to watch but so easy right he has one (laughs) hand on it at times because he takes off the other hand to reach up and he doesn't have any foot grip or anything (laughs) No, it's so funny. And they're all three holding on to him, right? As he's climbing, like climbing up this rope. It's so funny. Um, but really wonderfully thought and like exactly how you would imagine uh, somebody extremely strong to do something. Anyway. And this is kind of where we also learn this is a this is a magical world, right? Not a, yep. we're not following all the regular rules here. Not at all. Excuse and me. This guy's catching up to him still. He's like, how is this possible? Inconceivable. So it, right. He decides the, to leave the, the fighter behind, the swordsman, and to best this person who's coming, who we haven't met yet. We don't know who it is. We don't know what's going on. We don't know. We, we think maybe it's one of the king's men at this point. And, uh, you know, Vicini wants him to just, like, you know, stab him in the face as he finally comes up or step on his fingers. But this is where we learn that Inigo has like a moral code and he wants to fight this person honestly. And that's why he hands him the rope uh, so he can properly rest up and fight him. Yep. So he hands him down the rope. He climbs up the rest of the way. He gets up to the top. He says, I'll give you a few minutes to rest. And scene seven starts the sword fight as Mm. the man in black prepares to fight. Inigo tells him, of his quest to avenge his father from the six-fingered man. The man in black goes on to defeat Inigo in a sword fight, sparing his life. Knocks him out. Yeah, and it's a wonderful fight. During the fight, they not only use the entire uh, area that they're in, which is like a cliffy, rocky um, uh, plateau, but um and so there there's many levels and they're running up and down and jumping and all they're doing tricks but at one point in time they're fighting and you know the swordsman says oh you're pretty good and he says thank you i've been training my whole life or something like this and he says but i have something to tell you because he's getting backed up and you know almost beaten and as he gets to the wall or to the last step he can take backwards he says I am not left-handed and he throws the sword to his other hand and starts to fight back. And then the scene changes. And now our new introduced character is being beat. And then he says, well, I have something to tell you too. And I am not left-handed either. And he flips the sword to his other hand. And then that's when he wins. Great scene. I agree. Um, I really, really love Mandy Patinkin's uh, monologue where he tells the story of his uh, father being killed by the six fingered man. I think this is where we're really like, Damn, this like this actor, I'll just go ahead and say it. I think Mandy Patinkin wins best actor of the movie, and I think he might even be the heart of the movie, even more so than the love between Wesley and Buttercup. I think everybody wants to see Mandy Patinkin get revenge more than anything, and I think that's because his acting and like this monologue, this guy is phenomenal. He's an old um, stage actor, uh, theater, and very well-trained and an, an amazing actor. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Um that whatever they did, you know, whoever shot this film really understood him as well and his style of acting because 
there's a lot of close-ups on just him, especially during his whole that whole monologue, the way that he's framed and the way that his face looks. And they do the same thing when he finally meets this foe later. They they frame it very similarly. They give him that same I don't know, he's able to emote and like yeah. um have that have that aura about him. He's he's pretty phenomenal. You believe him, you know. You believe this happened to him. While he's telling him the story, he hands the man in black his sword to inspect it. Again, a show of respect. He shows that he trusts this man. He's handing him his sword before they fight. And this is also the first time we hear the line, Hello, my name is Inigo Mantoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And it's tough to say what the most famous line is from this movie, but that's got to be in the argument. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like... Yeah, for me that one's lived down in infamy for sure. That's that's the that is the line. Now the other things I had to go back and actually look at the closed captions to see what they were is I've seen this movie a bunch of times and during the sword fight they say a bunch of things I can't understand. And it turns out it's because they're talking about different fighting strategies and the names of them. So I'm gonna go ahead and say them here for any of you out there who have been like, What the hell do they say? They talk about four different fighting strategies. Um it's Boniti's defense. Capo Ferro, Thibaults, and High Agrippa. So there it's you all go. Fen- it's all fencing. And, yeah, it's all uh, fencing sword, terms that they're talking play. about. Yeah. They're like, I see you're using Bononi's defense. I've, perhaps you think I'm going to use Capo Ferro. <laughs> yes, but Thibault is a great uh, counter to it, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. I never understood yeah. what they were talking about. I thought it had something. It's, it's one of those things where you love it anyway. It doesn't matter that you don't understand <laughs> it, you know? Yeah, I think sword fighting is mental very much a mental game more than you know physically or i'm sure you have to be physically adept as well and that gives you uh advantage but uh it's a it's like chess it's a mental game uh scene eight the giant uh humperdick and the six humperdick (laughs) the six soldiers are fast on their trail investigating the fight scene that just ended as the man in black advances to meet fezzik who has been instructed to ambush the man in black with a rock to the head. Instead, he challenges him to an MMA match uh, and loses to a chokehold. Yeah, another great scene as he comes around the corner like a giant boulder smashes into a rock right next to his head. And then you look over and as you see under the giant with two giant boulders in either hand going, I did not have to miss. And uh, he says, yeah, I, I believe you. And then he says, we don't have to fight like this. We can fight like men. And then they do. And he does his agility maneuverability. And you end up with a chokehold. So here's the question. What is the dread pirate robbers in D&D? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it sounds like a swashbuckler. It also sounds like they have to be a great leader, maybe a bard, really good, um, you know, convincing of people. But, I mean, the Dread Pirate Roberts is just an idea, Sean, and we're getting to that. Okay. (laughs) um, uh, There's a move that Andre does in this uh, scene, which uh, was very reminiscent to me growing up. Uh, I was always um, bigger than all the kids in my grade, but also a year younger. I was just some this mammoth kid, right? And when I would wrestle, I did the old slam my back against a rock, <laughs> you know, or against a wall. I've done that move so many times. Like somebody's got my back and you back up against the wall and see if you can get them that way. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I've, I've wrestled you before. <laughs> There's also, um, this, we notice here that he's left both to live. He could have killed, the man in black could have killed uh, both of his enemies at this point, but he left them both alive. But also, both of his enemies didn't ambush him. They both treated him with, uh, I guess you could say, like a gentleman's agreement or with some type of code of honor. And uh, maybe that has something to do with the fact of why he didn't kill either of them. Yeah, could be. Could be. I know he wasn't... um he wasn't after them maybe and didn't really want to create he's also knows he's better i think and so that he doesn't have to kill them in order to get what he wants he does have that aloofness to him the whole movie doesn't he like he just thinks he's better than everybody yeah totally 
I mean, I think kinda... that's one of the reasons why uh, Inigo is a more lovable character. Honestly, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing about Inigo that's not lovable. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, he's a very arrogant until he's yeah. Uh, scene nine: The Battle of Wits. The Man in Black advances to Vicini, who is waiting for him with a set table of food. The Man in Black challenges him to a game of wits called "Which Poison Is the Cup In." He puts poison in a cup. The Vicini decides which one to drink. It turns out both of them had poison, but the Man in Black had immunity to it. Lidocaine. Yeah, he had built up a resistance over many, many years to this lidocaine. So it didn't matter which cup he drank. But Fezzik, I mean, but... Uh, Vicini. Vicini loves the contemplation, so he definitely goes through the contemplation out loud. <laughs> and it's uh, it's really pretty fantastically wonderful it's scene funny. as well. Yep. His face is funny the whole time, the way it gets kind of like sweaty and scrunched up. Yeah, yeah. Very um, rat-like. Robin Wright is continues to kind of be a mannequin at this point. Like, she's very much not involved in her own captivity. <laughs> she's just kind of... Like, earlier she did try to run away at one point, but, you know, at this point, like, she doesn't move an inch uh, during this scene. Um, I do want to know, why was there a meal set up? When the man in black arrived, it seemed like, I don't know, just worked out perfectly for this scene. <laughs> There's three apples, a knife, bread, and wine on the table. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a little weird, but, you know, you kind of got to roll with it with some of these movies. And finally, uh, you know, why didn't, if Vassini is so smart, why didn't he just close his lips and not actually drink? Like, they can't see each other's lips because these freaking goblets are so big, it's covering their face when they drink. You can do the old trick, like the person thinks you're drinking a shot of vodka and you're just closing your lips while you tip it up. I mean, you could just look in the cup when they were done and be like, there's still liquid in there. That's true. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's a movie, so I'm guessing <laughs> it's part of the plot. <laughs> Sorry, this was this was the scene. This is the scene that I had a couple of things I was upset about. I guess. I'm like, why is she not doing anything to help? Because a couple other times she does, but here she doesn't. And I'm like, why is there a table set? And why the fuck does he drink? So this scene had a couple of things, but it's a great scene regardless. Well, she's not sure who this person is. And that's true. Doesn't know if it's better or worse. And who is she? Who would she help? That's herself? a good point. And that kind of goes right into the next scene. Scene 10, Lovers Reunited as Humperdick <laughs> continues to track the man in black. Uh, the man in black uh, admits to Buttercup that uh, he is the dread pirate Roberts who killed Wesley. He ridicules her for her quote unquote love of Wesley. She gets upset, pushes him down the hill, at which time he yells, as you wish, revealing he is Wesley. She rolls after him and then they kissed at the bottom of the hill. Which also happens to be at the base and entrance to. Oh no! The fire swamp. Yep. <sighs> the fire swamp. This is um. Fred Savage gets upset here again because yes, kissing. he does. Yep, he does not like it. Pukes a little bit in his mouth. So, two things happen here. I found interesting. First of all, Wesley is a dick to her here he's like he really fucks with her here like you would think he's he's finally with her again he'd be like oh my god i'm so happy to see you i'm like instead he just fucks with her he's like you're a bitch <laughs> she's like fuck you asshole well it's the one time with the mask on that he still gets to, he gets to try to not be told what to do and how to do it all the time <laughs> he got out I'm of flr for a minute yeah no seriously that's like that's what it is he's like wow she doesn't really know who i am for i can i can play a part really quickly here yeah <laughs> that's kind of cool i like that so also she has agency here she takes control of her destiny and she pushes him and it seems like throughout the movie the only time she really gets agency and really gets upset is when it has to do with wesley's love which what does that tell you she's really likes him <laughs> Love, hate, you know. So now they're back together, but 
they're stuck because at the top of this hill that they just rolled down, here comes Humperdink and his troop of men. Yep, six of on, them on horseback. He kind of has like one lead soldier with him, and then five other soldiers uh, with him. Uh, so, so uh, scene eleven, the fire swamp. Uh, Buttercup and Wesley are chased into the fire swamp by Humperdink. Wesley tells Buttercup how he became the Dread Pirate Roberts. And they defeat the three challenges of the fire swamp, the flame spurt, the lightning sand, and the R-O-U-S's. R-O-U-S. Rats of unusual size. Who was played by Danny Blackner. Because while watching this, I'm like, Christy, is that a dude in the rat suit? Like, look at the legs. I think that's a dude in there. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I think you're right. That doesn't look like, uh, you know, a, a Muppet. And so I looked it up, and yeah, there's a dude in there. <laughs> well done. Well played. Way to go, Danny Blackner. And so he bests the rat. They best the... And they, they know that if they go through the fire swamp, that they'll get to where they're going faster because the rest of them will have to go around it. Now, they defeat all three. They find out that the flame spurt is preceded by a couple clicks, so they find out how to avoid that. Uh, they find out what the lightning sand looks like after Buttercup falls into it and is rescued. And then finally, they just have to battle a couple REO US's. And Wesley gets pretty messed up in the meantime. And again, Buttercup does not really help. As a matter of fact, there's one point where the RO US turns from Wesley, runs at Buttercup, and instead of even running away, she just stands there and yells, Wesley, help! <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming Buttercup. A guy definitely wrote this movie. I'm just saying it's ridiculous. <laughs> she doesn't even run. <laughs> yeah, princess. Yeah, total princess. But um, this is an amazing set. Uh, somebody obviously made this set. This isn't a real place, and uh, it's really cool looking. It's a it's a set that really gets in your head. And I know as a kid, especially, I thought this set was so cool looking. I wanted to go visit that place. Yep, definitely cool, except for the rats. I wouldn't want to meet them. Uh, but yeah, it was cool. It was Would you want to meet Danny Blackner if he had on the rat costume, but not the head? Uh, maybe. Uh, what if he had a head on, but not the body? Mm, that's your stuff. Then you're in yeah. your territory there. I know. So scene 12, Wesley captured. Wesley and Buttercup are captured by Humperdinck and his men while exiting the fire swamp. Buttercup negotiates Wesley's safety for her return. Wesley is brought to the pit of despair by Count Rugen, played by Christopher Guest. Count Rugen. The six-fingered man. We meet mm -hmm. the six-fingered man. Mm-hmm. He's on his horse as well. And doesn't he notice it, too? Doesn't Wesley notice it? Yeah, he says, because Wesley heard the story of the six-fingered man that Inigo is looking for just a, earlier that day, and he sees the glove of Count Rugen and says, I see you have six fingers. I know a person who was looking for you. And then Count Rugen gets really mad, knocks him out. And then uh, Wesley wakes up in the pit of despair with an albino, uh, with a, a horse in his voice, uh, cleaning him up and says that uh, the master would like him cleaned before he's tortured by the machine. <laughs> Wesley's kind of bondaged up here a little bit, kind of like no shirt, some leather straps happening here, a little something for the ladies. Yeah, the the person that plays the um the cleaner upper, the like the the weird doctor, like the weird the albino uh, scientist. Oh my right. god, such a lovely character acting scene there too. Just plays his part perfectly. Um, yeah, that a good scene. You you start to think, oh no, there's there's no way he can get out of this. Yep, and the albino played by Mel Smith. Very funny. Uh, scene 13, the deal. Buttercup has a nightmare where she is booed uh, by a fabulous actress who gets a small little part, Marjorie Mason. She then wakes up, threatens to commit suicide to Humperdinck. Uh, he proposes instead of suicide, he sends his four fastest boats in every direction to find Wesley, tell him to return because she loves him. But the deal is if Wesley doesn't return, they can still get married and she agrees. So does he send the boats? Hmm, I don't know. But I want to back up to that scene where she has the nightmare for a second. 
where uh, she's pronounced the queen and uh, Marjorie Mason playing that old woman starts to yell like, boo, mm-hmm. boo, queen of putrescence. That scene, that's another scene where it's not like a line you remember necessarily, but I think it's up there with some of the most memorable things from this movie. Yeah, no, it's up there. It's up there for sure. Just the whole, the look on her face, the the feeling of being yelled at like that in front of everybody and only, you know, the silence, the weird silence of everybody else. And just the one person too. That's, it's an interesting scene. Yeah. And so that's obviously her conscious fucking with her there. Right. And so, um, the other thing that happens in this scene is that Fred Savage goes full asshole. So my wife mentioned that when she watched this as a kid with her family, her mother was not happy with the way Fred Savage talked to his grandfather (laughs) and watching it again. I can see why. Because when <laughs> when she has the nightmare after she's married, Fred Savage is like, Grandpa, you got the story wrong. Read it right. And he looks at him like he's going to fucking deck him, dude. <laughs> he's a fucking asshole. And I'm remembering this a bit now. That was kind of a thing back in the 80s with kids that age in movies and sometimes in real life. There was this thing about talking back to parents and being like a Bart Simpson, you know? It's all part of the big cycle. It's all part of that big, the greatest generation came back and just wanted a little bit less of that for their loved ones. <laughs> and so they had kids and then those kids became our parents and they were even more like, we don't want you to suffer at all. <laughs> so that's how they raised them. So that's what you got. Yeah. Then you get the little kids who are like going, telling your parents what to do. Cause if you would have said that to one of the greatest, you know, generation right. grandparents would have said that to their parents, they would have got exactly. smacked. But here's what's weird. When Fred does it to the greatest generation parent, that guy's like, oh, yeah, like, your he's parents got to deal with you when I leave. <laughs> right. That's, he's already passed it. He's like, eh. He's uh, like, oh, I lived through a war. This is nothing. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I hope you're, you're going to get backhanded by your mama. So, yeah, Fred Savage turns into a little bit of a fucking tyrant in this scene. Grandpa, right. Then we move to scene... 14, the pit of despair. Um, the king confesses to Count Rugen that he plans to kill Buttercup uh, uh, the day after the wedding to start a war. Count Rugen then goes into the pit of despair to torture Wesley with the machine uh, as if he's a scientist. He extracts one year from his life and takes notes. Yep. And you can see this machine sucking the life out of him yeah how would you describe this machine uh it's i think it's absolutely meant to be spoofy but it's just like a weird contraption that's hooked up to your head and like a little cap that fits on your head and then they're like and they're like cups you know how people get those cup treatment these days those suction cups they put cups on his nipples (laughs) they put cups on his nipples yeah, it's, with the leather it's, straps. Yeah, it's all over there, all over him, and it's yeah, something for the ladies. All right, so uh, he takes a year off his life. Uh, Wesley doesn't look like he's happy. Uh, scene fifteen: Friends reunited. Humper Dink instructs the chief enforcer uh, to form a brute squad and empty the thieves' forest before the wedding. The brute squad encounters a drunk Inigo in the thieves' forest and tries to arrest him. Fezic shows up and defends Inigo and nurses him back to health while telling him about the six-fingered man. Inigo says they need to find the man in black to help him get his revenge against the six-fingered man. Yeah, so this is an interesting twist. Um, And I think it's also another point in how well this is written because if Vecini was still alive, they would never have been willing to go and do this because Vecini would still be trying to run the show. That's exactly right. And the thing I never noticed until this time watching it is that's exactly what Inigo is mumbling to himself as the guards are showing up to take him out. He's like, Vecini told me to come back here. He said, come back to the beginning if we get broken up. So it's like he's waiting for his Vecini to come back because he doesn't know what to do anymore. And so uh, that doesn't happen. Instead, Fezzik shows up. And I find it really heartwarming seeing these two together. They feel like friends. And again, maybe that has to do with the great acting of um, 
uh, Mandy Patinkin. I don't want to, you know, put down Andre the Giant, but I would guess that Andre, uh, Mandy Patinkin probably has, you know, some better acting chops. But it really feels like these two like each other. And you just, as a viewer, you love these two together. Yeah, well, you're 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 still rooting for Mandy Patinkin, right? Because you really want to see him get revenge. And Andre, for whatever reason, when they cast him, they realize that his what his charisma is strangely is that people adore him. Like they just, for whatever reason, he's he's the gentle giant. Um, even though that isn't how he is portrayed in what he actually does, right? Like, I don't know. I find that so fascinating, too, that they realized that when they cast him. But yeah, because Andre, for the longest time, was a villain in the uh, WWF before WWE. And then, uh, yeah, these guys saw a different side of him. Yeah, and, and it's, I think it is the natural him because the it comes out in that scene. It comes out that he's a soft, caring, kind giant. Scene 16, Wesley dies. Buttercup learns that Humperdinck lied to her about the boats and goes on to throw lots of insults at him, which makes him very upset. He throws a fit, locks her in a room, heads to the pit of despair, and turns the machine up to 50, uh, draining Wesley's life. Wesley screams the ultimate suffering scream, which everyone in the kingdom can hear, including Inigo and Fezzik. They travel to the sound, uh, knock out the albino outside the pit, and find the secret door. <clears throat> yeah, yep, on accident, they they find it, but not by accident. They ask him, yep. he asks his father to guide his yeah. sword, and then... It, takes it over there and it doesn't really do it but then he leans into the tree and it does do it so it's a really another very well written scene that you if you don't really think about it right it's just another one of those things but then when you allow for what the actual writing did it, it, it it's like it's saying a lot of things there i think it's cool one thing i like about this movie is they do treat it a little bit like you know magic in the way that they talk about the term ultimate suffering like it's a thing, right? You know, just like the way they talk about true love, like it's this actual thing. And not to, not to say true love isn't, but it's funny. It's like everybody recognizes. It's like, wait, that's an ultimate suffering yell. It's almost like a, a dragon's breath or something is the way I interpreted it. Like it's this thing that exists in this world. And they know the only way to make an ultimate suffering yell is... Uh, for somebody to be in the situation like Wesley, right? Like, what if you died while you knew your true love needed you? Yeah. Yep. And they identify it. They find him. Rescue him. Yep. Uh, but which is, it's, is, he, is he alive or dead? Right. So that's scene 18, Miracle Max, Fezzik and Inigo find Wesley dead and take him to Miracle Max who reveals that Wesley is only mostly dead and makes a pill for Wesley at a discounted price since it's for true love. But it took a little bit of persuasion from his wife. Yeah. So this would be my argument for like the, one of the better or one of the scenes that people remember the best. Um, it's, it's either this one or the boat scene, I would say. Um, and yeah, it, here they bring in again, two top notch actors and actresses, um, like perfect character actors and, and they play the role of Miracle Max and his wife I just to the T. Yeah, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane. Uh, and they both have, you know, hard New York. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what they are. Um, they're weird type creatures, but uh, God damn it, it's funny. The whole scene is funny. Yes, and we learn that the uh, Miracle Max was fired by Prince Humperdinck. So the reason he wants to do this at such a discount, because they don't have a lot of money, right, is uh, for revenge. But then they find out that the uh, man in black wants to do it for true love. And then we have Inigo who wants to do it for revenge. This is another scene where Fred Savage throw, shows his true colors. When he hears that Wesley is dead, he again freaks out at his grandpa and tells his grandpa to get the story right and threatens to slap him. <laughs> he, he's yeah. an asshole man. 
<laughs> yeah, he's he gets upset because the main character shouldn't die in the stories, and right. And then again, he's getting his grandfather's like, "Do you want me to stop? I can come no. back tomorrow. Do you want me to hit you like my dad hit me? <laughs> I've got my stick right here." So that yeah, off they go back into the story. Um, yeah, Miracle Max tries to 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 deny it, and then his wife calls him a liar, which is one of the. Another one of those things that comes up that the way that she yells out liar, I've heard people do that. And, uh, I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. And I don't even know if I want to be that anymore. My <laughs> yep. wife says that sometimes. <laughs> yep. Uh, on and on and on. It's a super funny movie. Uh, scene 19, the plan Fezzik, Inigo and Wesley create a rescue plan while sitting outside of the castle gate guarded by 50 men. The plan involves a wheelbarrow and a Holocaust cloak. Yeah. Wesley is partially paralyzed. Yeah. He's coming back from the dead right now after the miracle max pill is starting to work on him. Um, They have come up with the new plan. They, they help him see what it looks like and they just happen to have a Holocaust cloak. Yeah, he got uh, Fezzik got it from Miracle Max's, and the wheelbarrow was from the uh, albino from the Pit of Despair. And so they uh, have this awesome plan, and this this is the next scene. Are you calling that the next scene? No, well, hold on one sec. I I do think it's really funny how um, Fezzik controls Wesley's head in this scene. Like he nods mm-hmm. for him, he shakes his head no, and yes, it's really funny. <laughs> Because <laughs> Wesley can't control anything in his body, you know. So the whole the whole time, Andre the Giant's carrying around him on his back and like moving his head for him. It's pretty pretty cute. Yeah, it's a good scene. Um, um so next is the crashing of the wedding. Now at this point, uh, much like uh, the end of Star Wars movies, we have scenes woven together. So there's lots of cuts back and forth between usually two scenes happening at the same time. So the crashing of the wedding, uh, the two scenes that are put together. Uh, one is our heroes scare everyone from the gate by disguising Fezzik as the dread pirate Roberts, which is intercut with scene two, which is buttercup and Humperdink are hastily married as they hear the gate being crashed. Yeah, this is Andre the giants um, cameo. This is like, I, again, this another, another couple lines where people say them all the time. And I, you know, there's some stuff that he says in there that I don't think anybody will ever know. Uh, <laughs> same, same thing. I was like, I was like, should I go back and write that down? I don't like, there's a couple words. I was like, what did yeah. you say? And I'm, I can, I can hear like the director going, look, all that matters is that we understand pipe dread pirate Roberts. And he gets that out pretty good <laughs> and die. If they understand, if you hear those two words and that's pretty much all you understand him say, the rest of it is like, dread pirate Roberts. Mm-hmm. Prepare to die. So the other line in this scene that might be the most memorable is marriage, which my cousin um, <laughs> asked me to get up at his uh, wedding and do a speech and start it with that. And my cousin found it really funny, but I don't think like the bride's parents did. <laughs> it was one of those deals. I'm like, you really want me to go up there and say this? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Well, when I, I gave my speech at your wedding and i didn't i feel like there was some people in the room that didn't get it but well there were people in the room talking about attacking you afterwards you're lucky you got out of there with your head no i felt that i felt that i felt that but i think the marriage is also extremely iconic um yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I've said that of all the lines, I've probably said that one second the most. I think anybody want a peanut in my life, I've definitely said that the most. Um, but that this marriage of two of <laughs> yeah, the whole that whole scene again picked the perfect person for it. This director really had a vision. Yeah, and I, you know it's it's very. I think it's pretty rare. Tarantino actually talks about this when they interview him. He talks about this, about how there's all these actors 
and they're amazing actors and actresses and that people just stop using them because the norm becomes to use these four or five actors. Right. And then that's just right. what you expect in every freaking movie. And that is, and then these other people who are probably better actors, they just never get used. And then every once in a while, someone will come along and like gather them all up and put them in a movie. And you're like, Oh my God, that's such a good movie. Yeah. Like why are none of these people being showcased? And then a couple of them will come back to, out of obscurity for a while and then go back away. Right. Um, and so like he, he, he was like an expert of, he, I, well, he gave a lot of credit. He's basically saying, look, I'm not even writing that good of movies. Just I'm, I know where to find the people. I have access to these people who are, no one else is using and that that's just stupid. That's why yeah. my movies are good. And I don't, I don't necessarily agree with all of that, but I think that some of that's definitely true. Yeah. And when Rob Rodner made this movie, he was on a tear. He had done This Is Spinal Tap after this. He did, did When Harry Met Sally, went on to do Few Good Men. I mean, he was like the top of his game, making all the hit movies. Um, the next scene, scene 21, Inigo's Revenge, uh, once inside the castle. Uh, we're, again, split between two scenes. One is Inigo and Count Rugen, and one is Wesley and Buttercup. Um, Inigo chases R Count Rugen as Fezzik carries a helpless Wesley. Fezzik has to leave Wesley to help Inigo with a door. When he returns, Wesley's gone. Meanwhile, Buttercup is locked in her room and attempts suicide before Wesley stops her. Count Rugen ambushes Inigo with a dagger to the stomach, but it's not enough to stop Inigo from getting his revenge. Another great scene. This is where he gets to exact his revenge. This is where he gets to say the line, the famous line. Um, this is where everybody in the movie cheers. Uh, and it's not even really a close battle, right? Once they actually start to fight, it's over pretty quick. Yeah. It's like he does the Hulkamania thing. You know how Hulk would get like beaten and he'd be on the ground and he'd be done. But then all of a sudden his finger would go up in the air and start twitching. <laughs> That's exactly what he does here. Cause he takes the dagger to the stomach, by the way, you know, D and D style, Sean dagger to the stomach. I mean, how bad of condition do you think he's in there? Eh, one D four plus one. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, but what level is he? I mean, how many HP does this guy have? It doesn't really matter. Even at second level, you've got enough hit points to take that. No I problem. think it was a critical hit, personally. Anyway. Um, Even so, two, okay, so two die four plus two. But yeah, he does the thing where it looks like he's down and out. He gets stabbed uh, in both shoulders, but then all of a sudden, he it's like his father's soul, like, you know, takes over and he gets his uh, second win and he just wrecks uh, Count Rugen. Um he has the great line, which is where Count Rugen starts offering him money, gold, power. He says, I'll give you anything you want. And he says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch, and then kills him. So great. Well, he tells him, he says, offer me money. Offer yeah. me wealth. Offer me this. And he starts, he does, and then he's on his knees. I don't want any of that, you son of a bitch. I want my father back dead. Dead. See you later. Everyone claps. Yay for the death. Yeah, I think the true climax of the movie or the true payoff is that scene um there's also a pretty funny line in here where um wesley tries to stop a uh, buttercup from killing herself when i say funny it's just interesting the line is uh there's a uh why do that when there's um why he said damn it i did perfectly good breast when there's a breast shortage i didn't write yep. down the exact line i just yeah. wrote down breast shortage <laughs> well because he has she has the dagger to her chest right yep yeah and so and he all of a sudden he is laying in the room in paralyzed somehow that she's about to kill herself in yeah yeah i wonder how he did get there since he can only move <laughs> well i suppose at this point he can move his legs but barely is what we find out so well, scene yeah. 22 yeah so scene 22 humperdick surrenders uh buttercup reveals uh that she never said i do during the married during the wedding so they aren't married Humperdinck then confronts Wesley and Buttercup. Wesley challenges him to the pain and intimidates Humperdinck into surrendering. So who asks her, because I think this is another really interesting thing, is, is does the swordsman ask her, Millie Batankin? Ask her if she said yes? Yeah. No, it's Wesley. The Wesley's in okay. bed and, and she's like, but I'm married now, Wesley. And he says, did, <laughs> did you, you say, say yes? You? And she's like, well, no. And he's like, well, then you're not married. Okay. That's he's, right. Again, the arrogant him. He's like, I know everything. <laughs> right, 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 right. Very, very calm, calm, and got it, got it under control. With that little stash, too, that dirty little stash. Yeah, that's porn. They call that a porn stash. Thin little guy on that one. Yep. Um, 
so yeah, uh, this is where Humperdinck surrenders. He gets tied to a chair and, uh, and they're ready to escape. Uh, final scene, scene 23, happily ever, happily ever laughter. Uh, Fezzik yells from outside the window in the castle courtyard that he found four white horses to escape on. Just they perfect, right? Yeah, right out the window. They all jump down onto the horses. <laughs> and they even have the music like it's magical. As soon as he shows up outside the window, it's like, do, 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 do. Yeah, it's yeah. just, it's like they really want to make it like a fairy tale ending. Yeah, no, absolutely. They was intentional. Again, vision and had the full vision for this. This is where Mandy Patinkin has a quick um, loss of self-identity. And he says, what the hell am I going to do now that I avenge my father? And Wesley said, have you ever considered being the Dread Pirate Roberts? And Mandy's like, oh, maybe we'll do that. Perfect person for it. Yeah. And then uh, Grandpa stops reading. He says, I'm not going to finish it because last part's a kissing part. Uh, Fred says, give me that shit, Grandpa. <laughs> he reads it. <laughs> And uh, Wesley and Buttercap, Buttercup have the most pure kiss of all time. Yeah, it's so pure that it's impure. Oh, damn. They, it was so pure that she got pregnant. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> can you get pregnant from kissing? Uh, Apparently in this movie you can. Uh, so yeah, uh, you can tell the book took all day because now it's uh, nighttime. Uh, through the windows and um, the grandpa says you know see you later alligator and Fred's like you know grandpa maybe uh, you know I'm not like a nerd or anything but maybe you come back tomorrow and read it to me again again he doesn't even say fucking thank you the guy just read him a whole story that he complained during that the words thank you never came out of his mouth he just is like oh maybe you're not such a shitty grandpa and you could come back tomorrow and read it to me again if you bring me shit <laughs> Grandpa says, as you wish, and leaves. Oh, so good. So good. That's what grandpas did back then, though. I think I had a little bit of Fred in me as a kid. I think I was like, Grandpa, bring me some shit. <laughs> well, don't don't you just think that's more of a comment on what he was trying to say anyway? Like, I think he was making a comment on all of those things. About, I mean, he intentionally made her, he intentionally said that, like, you, you pointed it out, that that what she was, what made her happiest was telling Wesley what to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so then he's taking that same attribute, attribute and giving it to this young kid who is telling his grandfather what to do, right? And in both situations, I think he's saying, yeah, this isn't really something that is appealing. Hmm. I don't know. It seems appealing when Buttercup does it. Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's, if you think about the way that the movie is all tongue in cheek, like almost everything in it is like telling you saying something else, right. Or, or pointing out something else, not everything, but a lot of it. And I think that is another one of those things. I don't think the movie's supposed to have any morals. I don't think it's meant, I don't think the writer meant to project any ideas or morals onto us or is trying to teach us any kind of lesson. I really think it's just a piece of entertainment. That I don't think like, I don't think artists can help but com make comments about. I think that's what they do. Like that, yeah. I think I think they can't. He can't help it. I think that's just part of how he just you know, like explains the story. But it, I mean, either way, it's an it, it, it is what it is. No matter what, is a representation of that time, which is what you're saying. Is a, it's a representation of the change that that's taken place with people's attitudes and like their their ability to be comfortable in doing that. Right. And I do wonder <clears throat> if the movie will continue to age so perfectly. Cause I do think people have just loved it more and more over time because of the way that the woman has no agency, you know, the kids, a little shithead to his grandpa um, and that the cast is completely white. You know, it's just uh, I wonder if over time people will be like, yeah, it's a great movie, but you know, it's not perfect where right now I think people are putting it up there in the perfect category, which I, honestly I would too, because uh, again, it is, and to go to the white thing, it is the history of uh, uh, like Northern Europe, like this whole medieval thing, which was a pretty white area. So I think they can kind of get away with that. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, my wife and I were talking about it afterwards. We're like, perfect movie, perfect movie, question mark. And that's one thing that we did bring up. We're like, well, there isn't a whole lot of representation. They're all, you know, cis white and, you know, whatever. It's still a great movie, but it's it's something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it depends on the, well, I think it depends on a lot of things, but yeah. Yeah. Come on, Sean, give me something. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's that's just such a deep and touchy subject that I think there's a ton of opinions around it, obviously, but I'll, I'll, I think about it this way. If, if the subject matter should in, in entail, like if it makes sense that there would be uh diversity, then it should be included. And I think there's been plenty of times where that's not the case, but it also doesn't make sense to just to insert it where it wouldn't make sense. Right. Yep. I think that's a great way to, to break it down. And yeah. uh, I think this is a great movie and I'm glad that uh, it's your favorite and it caused me to watch it again. I feel like I picked up some things I didn't see before my, you know, I watched it with my family. They all enjoyed it again. And uh, yeah, it's a good time, man. Let's do what it, Harlem nights. That's cause that's another one up there for me. Okay. Well, you get to wait because first we did my movie Gummo, and now we did your movie um, Princess Bride. So now we're we'll next, get to next Harlem we're, Nights. Harlem Nights is up there, though, right? But I mean, hey, whatever you want, basically, it's your choice. But first, I get to go. And uh, Sean, have you ever seen the movie Exit Through the Gift Shop? I don't know. Don't think so. It's a movie made by Banksy about street art, and it asks you the question. Uh, well, I don't know what, we'll see what question it asks us, but it's, uh, it's a movie that changed my life. And, uh, for that reason, I would love to review that one next. So that sounds fucking stupid. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this review of the princess breed. Um, I'm Jeff. He's Sean. This is forever quest. If you want to support us, go on to Patreon. Forever Quest, Dinky Dongle, and uh, check it out there. Thanks for uh, uh, thanks I, for talking I make this art one, that's Sean. really not art. I'm going to shred it live, and uh, it's going to be worth even more. Uh. Now, hold on. I've never bought a Banksy. You actually texted me once, and you're like, should I buy this? And it was like some fucking like, spinny Globers. Did you ever buy that? I'm not going to tell you after that comment. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're the one here who owns Banksy, so... I don't know how much you want to be making fun of his style. Uh, so, you know, okay, let me ask you something. How many of you out there would absolutely die to have a motorcycle helmet disco ball? That's what I, I thought. I, don't, I, I heard crickets. I heard crickets, Sean. I heard I a lot of shit. clapping. I heard many people clapping and at least five people stand up and go, oh, my God, where do I get it? <laughs> no, I never bought that. Oh, okay. And it, it wasn't just like you could buy whatever you wanted. You It basically was you could enter a lottery that if you got picked, you could buy whatever you wanted. Did you enter the lottery? No. Oh, okay. Did, why didn't you, though? I don't actually... I, I love the idea of Banksy. I, don't, I wouldn't want to own his art. I don't think his art is actually that super interesting. I just think he, he's interesting. Well, there's a whole... That's just a whole nother topic for conversation, then. Yeah. So exit through the gift shop, everybody. Next movie. And then apparently uh, Harlem Fights, you said, or something like that. Is that an MMA show? That's got Eddie Murphy, right? Harlem Fighters. Whatever. You've seen it. You know. I think it's got Martin Lawrence, Eddie Murphy. I think they go to jail for a life or something like that. We're going to check it out, everybody. so many good actors in it. It's got so many good reds in that one. All right. That's really been great. Do you have any patrons we want to shout out or anything else before we go? We do have one person who doubled their patronage because they said they loved the musical episode so much. They said it was our best episode ever, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> Wait, who? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know what is wrong with you people, but stop that, please. Don't That's it. Now do I that. have to read it. I was going to do it next week, but no, you brought it up, don't Sean. don't encourage them. Do not encourage him to keep doing stuff like now that. I have to read the note. Sean. Keep talking while I find... Okay. From Philip. The musical episode had me rolling. Been thinking about upping the Patreon. Uh, Dunno. Uh, and that ep- did it for me. 
Uh, I was sad. There hasn't been many cold opens, so love that you brought it back. My favorite podcast overall, 10 by 10, 10 out of 10. Keep up the great work and bring back the soundboard. Wow. Yeah, the, uh, oh, the musical is actually gaining a lot of steam right now. Lynn Manuel Miranda's looking at it. He's looking to uh, option it into a uh, into a stage production. So I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb here and say that I, I have a ton of appreciation for Lynn, but not a good actor. Should not put himself into no. uh, the actual things that he creates no. and just let people who are very much better at it do it. And he, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think you're right. I do respect him, but like, stop putting yourself on, as the Lynn. main character. It just yeah. doesn't work for me. What are you doing, Lynn? Just write the songs for Moana. You did a great job. Okay, now go. Now don't show it. We don't want to see your face. Go it's away. not his face that bothers me. It's his acting that bothers Lynn, me. Lynn, your face. Get it out of here. <laughs> All right, Sean. <laughs> we have some EQ to play because we're still playing a little bit every morning. So we got to get going, man. It was good okay. talking to you. It sure was. Okay, bye, everybody. Okay.